Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, we are recording a little bit earlier this week because I'm taking next week off. When you all hear this, I should be somewhere in France, maybe donning a, a yellow vest. Doing a little field research. <laughs> little, yeah, yeah. yeah, me and Macron, we're going to go protest. So we're going to go, now it's just some R&R with uh, my wife. But because we care so much about the world does and we love doing this, we're going to do a very special Pod Save the World mailbag edition. Yeah, and later in the show, I'll be talking to Congressman Ro Khanna, who has emerged as one of the leading progressive voices in Congress, uh, standing up to the Trump administration on Yemen, on Iran, and a number of things. So we'll be talking about uh, what a progressive foreign policy looks like. So these are questions that you all sent in on social media. We are very grateful to all the questions. Those were not easy questions. Yeah, World is, uh, <laughs> they, they brought it, man. They really brought yeah. it. It's like, holy shit, I got to do some research here. Two kind of, I wouldn't call them breaking news items. They won't be anymore by the time you all listen to this. But some some uh, newsy items right now that came up over and over again were the situation in Greenland and then the Russia and the G7. So we might as well start there. So uh, you might have noticed that President Trump uh, somehow got it in his head that he wanted to buy Greenland. I guess he like yapped with enough people on his staff that this somehow got leaked to the press. And then the poor prime minister of Denmark had to issue a statement saying, no, we're not going to sell like a semi-autonomous iceberg to you. That's crazy. Trump kind of backpedaled initially. He said that it's just an interesting idea. It's not a top priority to buy Greenland. So, okay, good. <laughs> Probably yeah, shouldn't yeah, be a top yeah, priority. Yeah. But um. This did remind me of the time Obama threatened to invade Portugal because they wouldn't sell us the Azores. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, once again, there's just like no precedent for how deeply strange this is. And the reality is like Denmark is a really good ally of the United States. Right. You know, they're, they're a really dependable NATO ally, significant foreign aid donor. And to basically insult them, treat them like some tributary of the United States that should give us over 800,000 square miles of territory and then to cancel your you know visit with them it, it reminded me of when i was little and like an older brother or a neighborhood bully would take your fist and punch you in the face and say why are you hitting yourself well, that's how he treats our allies we're like i have a four and a half year old and a two and a half year old both wonderful obviously and you know but the dynamic is that the older one ella often wants to take the toy that the younger one has mm -hmm. i mean it's kind of like you won't give me your Lego set, so I won't come to visit you. Uh, which is clearly because Trump is lazy and doesn't give a shit and was probably looking for an out yeah. to go to Denmark. So he comes up with one with Greenland. But I mean, like, all right, step back. Like, in the United States, it's like, oh, here's another crazy thing Trump did. And we can all tweet about it. Like, the rest of the world is like, wait a second. The president of the United States of America was going to visit this country and refuses to go because they won't give him Greenland. It's so I baffling. Mean, it's, it's so baffling and embarrassing. And no other leader, there are a bunch of crazy crackpot leaders around the world, and we'll mm -hmm. probably get to some in the mailbag. None of them would do this. No. You know, like n nobody does this. This is really weird. And it'll be like a 24-hour story in our politics, but like this will never be forgotten 
in the history of Denmark. It, it, <laughs> you know, right, it like, will, it'll be the one thing a lot of people think of in Greenland and Denmark when they think of the United States. Yeah, like, oh, yeah. When they, I, it, It's one of these things, file away as like, yeah. this is actually worse than the dumb thing that it looks like. You know? I, I kind of assume that some Koch brother or someone told him that, hey, climate change is about to melt all the ice in that yes, place, so yes. let's buy it so we can drill there. And he thought this was some clever, creative idea. No, there's this huge focus now on the on Greenland and the Arctic as this area that's going to open up because mm-hmm. of the ice melting and there's going to be military strategic value to it and and oil and gas reserves and so yeah I mean somebody planted some seed in the very small yeah. brain of Donald Trump very very small brain the other thing a bunch of you guys asked about is this suggestion Trump made that we should invite Russia back into the G7 which would then make it the G8 there were even some reports that he had talked to French President Emmanuel Macron about this idea and that Macron was in favor. I find that to be a little bit dubious, probably a misrepresentation of what Macron said since he's been on the record saying that Russia should not be allowed yeah. back in. But what happened was during this press event, Trump said that Obama kicked Russia out of the G8 because he got outsmarted. Actually, if we remember our very recent history, it was because the Russians invaded parts of Ukraine. Yeah. They invaded Crimea. Ben, is there any argument for inviting Russia back to these meetings and like what would the process be isn't it sort of an informal setup anyway yeah no there's no case and i was in all the meetings when we decided to kick them out what happened is they invaded and then annexed crimea and they were actually supposed to host the next g8 in sochi where he'd had the olympics and there was this collective decision it was kind of a no-brainer it wasn't like yeah, controversial yeah, really. that we can't have this country that just violated international law and annexed a piece of territory from its neighbor back in in this club, essentially. And we imposed sanctions, obviously, over the annexation of Crimea. There's no reason to invite them back in because the initial reason for them being kicked out is still holds. Like, they've annexed Crimea. They're still messing around in eastern Ukraine. And the fact is, you don't even need to. The, the whole purpose of having a G7 is so that like-minded countries can get together and forge common strategies for how to deal with international issues. And so Russia is clearly not a like-minded nation. They'd be a spoiler. If they came to the to the G8, they would just spend the whole time disagreeing with everybody there about everything, which I, I guess Trump does now mm-hmm. too. But we can meet them at the G20, right? right. So there are these yeah. different organi- you know, groupings. The G7 is supposed to be the US and our allies and partners. The G20, we can meet Russia and China there too. So it makes no sense there's literally no reason to do this now. The The reason for them being kick, kicked out is still valid. And you wouldn't really gain anything from having mm-hmm. this venue. It's like he just wants to be with Putin more. It's you know? really weird. Yeah. It doesn't make any sense. Do you remember that G8 at Camp David? Maybe that was 2012 yeah. or 2013. And I remember Dmitry Medvedev was sent. Putin didn't show. Yeah. And Medvedev's people knew that this was kind of, I think, their last hurrah yeah. on the uh, international stage, and they got fucking hammered. So, uh, and they yeah. ordered 27 yeah. hamburgers from the yeah, 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 yeah. Like, middle of the night. I, yeah, I don't know if we've talked about this on the pod before, but like, so I'm there, and, and Medvedev was prime minister. Like, Putin right. had been elected president, right. didn't come, but he knew this is his last turn on the world stage like this, right? So he comes, and there's actually a bar at Camp David. It's not that nice a bar, no offense. I mean, it's just like a place where you can get you know, beer. Yeah, in a Camp David cup. They have vodka. And so the Russians literally bought all of the vodka bottles that were behind the bar and just took them back to their cabin. I know this because I was at the bar and I'm like, 
pardon my bad habits, but I was smoking out back and mm. all the Russians are smoking, mm-hmm. right? They're like chain smoking. And then they come out with these vodka bottles. And then the next morning, I'm walking by like the Russian you know, house that they're staying at. And there's just empty vodka bottles <laughs> all, over the, all over the thing. And then we go into the G8 and they're sitting around this table and, and Medvedev has... Uh, an iPad out and he's just watching like a soccer game. <laughs> like, so like during the, these like intense discussions about the future of the world, cause he's so checked out. He's just literally just watching the soccer. Was it the world cup that weekend? Cause we all, all of us sort of migrated into this room with a huge TV in it. And, and at one point we were all watching a soccer game and we looked up and like Merkel was on the right. And, yeah. and like the Canadians were like the, all the foreign leaders just kind of migrated. We were all hanging out watching yeah, TV. Yeah, it was um, Chelsea versus Bayern Munich oh, is that for what the it was? championship of you know. I'm okay. gonna, I don't embarrass myself by my lack of knowledge of what that is, but so Merkel and Cameron are like it's a really tense game. And what was interesting is like I think Chelsea won. I think we can look this up. And Merkel was like rip shit at David Cameron. <laughs> like was not there was no like collegiality. It wasn't like oh friendly bets or something. It, like Angela Merkel was really pissed about this. That's, oh, you're right. Yeah, it was a uh, Chelsea scored a dramatic win over yes. Germany's Bayern Munich. And there's this iconic photo. Cameron got his hands up. Obama's like mouth agape. Merkel is just just pissed. fucking rip shit. The other thing I remember from that G8 was in that same bar. I remember like having a beer with Jay Carney. Some of Medvedev's people were in there and a staffer who was you know on our advanced team very nice went up to one of them and said oh are you going to move over and work for for putin after this <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, and yeah. And were kind of laughing yeah, like yeah. Ah, that's not no, how no, this no, works. Not how it works yeah it's going to be yeah. a different You're lucky uh, if you stay out of prison different vibe ben here's one that came in from the twitter machine uh china's expansion into africa through bri the belt and road initiative would be something I'd love to hear y'all speak on, not only in the context of today, but also what the thought process around the BRI was like during your time in the White House. Thanks. Yeah, so I'll start the time in the White House. I actually think that we got this wrong. Um, and can you tell folks like what the what Belt and Road Initiative is? The, yeah, the so so the Belt Road Initiative is this essentially you know Chinese pool of funding that can help fund infrastructure projects. And they call it the the Belt Road Initiative because it, it, essentially it mimicked the old Silk Road. So it, it's infrastructure projects that kind of start in China, go through Southeast Asia, Central Asia, and then down into Africa. Mm-hmm. And, and the idea is that this can be a, a financing for all these countries to facilitate large infrastructure project roads, dams, ports, and things like that, right? And... Obviously, because the Chinese are really in the driver's seat of this, it really makes them the, a dominant economic player in all these places that are joining on to this initiative. We made a mistake. You know, They were setting up this Asia Infrastructure Development Bank, and we were kind of urging countries to not participate. Mm-hmm. Um, and frankly, that didn't work because <laughs> yeah. countries are like, well, we can get financing here quickly and more efficiently, quicker in some ways than the World Bank, which has correctly hoops you have to jump through to make sure that these projects aren't corrupt and yeah. make sure that they make sense and that they're not cost overruns. And this is kind of like a, a faster way. But it's one of these things where I think we could have probably had more influence if we kind of got involved mm-hmm. the, from the get-go. Um, instead, it became kind of this, it morphed into this Chinese-dominated thing. And, and, and what you see, the Belt Road Initiative, I believe, you know, yes, it can do some positive things. It can build roads. It can build, you know, large 
construction projects, mm-hmm. dams that bring electricity and the like. But it has become also not just this form of Chinese influence, because part of what happens is countries go into debt to China, right? So China is going to build a several billion dollar project that you can't really pay for, and you get into this kind of debt trap, and you're kind of beholden to the mm-hmm. Chinese. But also, it's totally corrupt, right? right. So the Chinese. And in some of these places, the Chinese are building the projects with, like, Chinese labor. So they're, like, bringing Chinese laborers into Africa, paying off the African leaders, building these infrastructure projects, putting the countries into a debt trap, and just, you know, dealing uh, with uh, corrupt governments in order to get that done. What I've seen happen with Belt Road Initiative in Africa is it's morphed into this growing Chinese influence, where it started where the Chinese are doing these infrastructure projects – but then the Chinese, you know, I was in Kenya a year ago and talking to some Americans working there. And they said, yeah, the Chinese influence here is really growing. And I said, well, yeah, infrastructure projects. And they said, no, it started with infrastructure. Now they're buying media companies. Wow. They're training the uh, political party, the ruling political party back in Beijing. They're, you know, they're attracting foreign students. You hear this all over Africa that that the Chinese are using the kind of foothold of Belt Road to really expand their political influence and their media influence and to take the best and brightest students who used to kind of go to the United States, take them to China. And, you know, some of this is, again, also corrupt and 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 they're facilitating. They don't care if the governments are democracies. They'd actually prefer that they not be because it's easier to kind of mm-hmm. make deals and do business with them. So to me, there's like a slight net plus for Africa that they are getting infrastructure that they need. There's probably also a net plus for Africa that they've been overly reliant on the United States and Europe for a long time, and now they feel like they have options, right? Mm. But then the downsides, I think, are China has no interest in promoting good governance and anti-corruption in Africa, and and those things are badly needed in many African countries. And so this could compound some of the governance problems that we've seen in certain African countries over the years. Mm. Here's a related question. Can you break down what's going on with Huawei and the significance of it all? So I can kick that one off because there is a, an African nexus here too. So Huawei is this massive Chinese telecom company. Uh, they make phones. I think they're the second biggest phone manufacturer after Samsung. But they also make like the equipment that can create a 5G network. Yeah. So they're you know really important and can. I think they're the biggest telecom company in the world. The United States has long had concerns that Huawei has ties to the Communist Party and to the uh, military establishment. The thinking goes that if a company like Huawei is allowed to build out, say, 5G infrastructure or networks in your country, they could engineer a way to have a backdoor into that network and let the Chinese spy on government leaders, individuals, whatever, using that equipment. They've basically been locked out of the U.S. market since, I believe, 2012. The Obama administration did a bunch of work trying to force them out of there under this provision called CFIUS, where the Treasury Department says an investment would create a uh, national security concern. But the Trump administration is like quadrupled down on this on lobbying. They've been telling allies like Germany, Italy, Japan, Korea to not let Huawei into their countries. A common thread there is a lot of those countries have U.S. military bases, and I think they're particularly worried about uh, our service members getting on those networks. Trump also issued an executive order that essentially barred U.S. companies from using communications technology from any company considered a national security threat. This was a Huawei, but not about Huawei provision. And then the Commerce Department put like a, a bunch of Huawei affiliates on this blacklist that requires U.S. approval before any U.S. companies can use their stuff. So they're really sticking it to them. Some countries have followed our lead, like the Australians, I think, barred them. Others have not at all, like the Indians 
are welcoming Huawei and to build yeah. up their infrastructure. And like you were saying before, they just dominate these African markets. The Wall Street Journal recently reported that Huawei helped African governments spy on their political opponents. Yeah. So the well-informed listeners uh, to the show might fairly point out that a lot of U.S. telecom companies have helped the U.S. government spy on people too. But I just point out that the journal reports that Huawei technicians were like training security forces yeah, yeah. It's, on it's, how it's to hack systemic, you. Yeah. yeah. And so... You know, and like, it's to perpetuate usually like authoritarian rule, exactly. you know, not to try to you know unwind a terrorist plot or something. Yeah, it's, this is political opponents yeah. or people yeah. they view as politically risky. So you know, we've also raised concerns about a Chinese company called ZTE, but it does seem like Huawei is a way to project influence abroad in the same way that uh, the Belt and Road Initiative can. Yeah, absolutely, and, and you know the the complicated thing here. So there are issues around whether. Companies like Huawei have been stealing intellectual property from U.S. tech companies to get an advantage. And then there's the question of whether Huawei is a backdoor for the Chinese government to spy on everybody. And those concerns are both very real. The way in which these kind of, quote unquote, private or non-state-owned businesses in China operate is very murky, right? Because everybody kind of knows that if you're a really big company in China— like you have to make accommodations with the government. Mm -hmm. and, and in fact, the government even has put in place, you know, kind of a governance structure for these companies where like the Chinese Communist Party kind of has a seat on the board. Mm -hmm. You know, there really is, uh, people really should be skeptical that, that a large Chinese enterprise like Huawei is operating independently. And I think there is good reason to think that the Chinese government is using its tech companies as a backdoor to spy. Huawei's been trying to go on this PR offensive to say the, how the independent they are. Mm -hmm. They actually have this kind of weird campus in China that has like a bunch of European-style buildings and, you know, restaurants and stuff, and they take journalists on these tours to show. Cool. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, very, it's very odd if, <laughs> don't if people bring want your, to read don't up bring on it. bring your phone. But the bottom line is that, okay, so what do you do about this, right? So Huawei has all this technology. They're big, you know, tech company. They're building 5G networks. If you travel and you get off the plane in most countries in the world and you get that, you know, the, the different Wi-Fi networks you can get on or other dudes' phones and you're sitting around mm -hmm. you on the plane, you'll see Huawei, you know? Yeah, sure. So like you can't, if you're going anywhere, you know, in most parts of the world, you will see that Huawei's networks are kind of everywhere, mm -hmm. right? And so what the U.S. government is currently trying to do under Trump is say, we want to essentially cut this off and say to all these countries in Europe and Asia that deal a lot with us, you have to choose. You you can't use any Huawei, you know, use Western technology. And frankly, I think that is it, the horse is out of the barn. It's impractical because, the first of all, the supply chain for how all these things work are, are so intermingled, you know. Like, you know, you have your phone and then you have the network that your phone gets on and then you have the materials in your phone and, you know, the, the chips that mm -hmm. go into your phone and the data store, like, you know, Microsoft stores data in China, like, you know, Google, is, like all these companies are, are, are operating in a global marketplace, right? And so the idea that you can kind of untangle that and get Huawei out of these places, I think is is incredibly difficult to begin with. Then if you've torched all your goodwill around the world like Trump has to, to ask countries to do really hard things. Yeah. You know, I was just in like a country like Spain and they're like, yeah, they're trying to get us to get rid of Huawei and, and Portugal too. And it's like, we, you know how hard that would be? And like, expensive. And they have partnerships with the kind of large telecoms in a lot of these countries and expensive. I think the Brits handled this well. 
which is they essentially said, okay, we believe that we can find a way to wall off, you know, the most important secrets in our, you know, territory from Huawei. You know, we'll, we'll let them in in kind of private business, but as we had with CFIUS, as we had with this, you know, review process about whether or not a company can operate in a certain area or enter a certain domain, the Brits are saying, like, we'll kind of mm-hmm. establish what our firewall is and keep Huawei on the other side of that, but we're not going to kick them out of the country, right? And I, I think that that is a natural place where this lands. But I think, you know, like, people should be mindful that, yeah, like, if you're on a Huawei network, like, uh, that is a potential backdoor for the Chinese government. And I have no doubt that they're making these deals in certain African countries where it's like, okay, you corrupt leader of X country, we will pay you some bribes to get our infrastructure projects greased. Right. Huawei's going to come in and dominate your telecom market. Oh, by the way, we can also help you out here. If you've got some internal opponents that you want some information on, we'll use Huawei. Like That yeah. totally rings true to me. And again, the US doesn't have cl- totally clean hands in this space too, as you point out. But the Chinese model is, I think, you know, undeniably more authoritarian than ours. Yeah, a little more transactional too. Here's a a good like foreign policy 101 question. So I would love a breakdown of key roles. What exactly is the NSC? What's the difference between NSC and State Department? Bolton's job versus Pompeo's. They mention a lot of positions, titles, but context as to who does what would be awesome. Great question. And sorry if we sometimes gloss over this yeah, one. Yeah, so, we throw acronyms around. Yeah, with too many acronyms. So l- let's start with, I'll do this in basics here. So John Bolton is the national security advisor. The thing that makes that job so powerful is well, there's a couple pieces of it, really. Uh, you sit down the hall from the president. Yeah. Uh, you go into the PDB every morning. So the president of the United States always turns to Bolton or Susan Rice uh, with all foreign policy questions sort of on the spot. You also manage the interagency process. Well, what is that? So when the situation room meetings are convened by the national security advisor or the president, the idea is to bring in all the components of the government that make foreign policy literally around a big table. So you have the Defense Department, the Secretary of State, you have the intelligence community, you have you know, Treasury, and they come together to debate things, make decisions, and ultimately push forward the whole process. So the national security advisor oversees that process, which is incredibly powerful. You know, you're supposed to be an honest broker. You're supposed to... yeah facilitate a conversation and then, you know, weigh in when you need to weigh in. But like, that's the way the role was traditionally set up. Yeah. The State Department, those are our diplomats. They serve in places all around the world uh, in a diplomatic capacity. They're ambassadors, they're stamping passports and visas and just like doing all kinds of stuff to represent the United States abroad. It's incredibly important. And Mike Pompeo is supposed to be leading that group. He seems to play a different role than like John Kerry did or Hillary Clinton. He's some weird pseudo general that's out there <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. but um i mean that's kind of the gist i don't know if there's anything you think is worth adding or noting yeah i mean i i think that this you know the nsc itself is a couple hundred people right organized around different regions right so europe asia africa the americas but then also certain issues terrorism not nuclear weapons and and that's a pretty relatively small group of people, a couple hundred people, where the State Department is tens of thousands of people and the Department of Defense is millions of people, right? And the, so the NSC is, is both coordinating and staffing the president kind of personally. Uh, the only thing I'd add to your very good summary is why is this not working like it normally works under Trump? 
you know, Bolton, as you said, you're supposed to provide advice to the president, but also be this kind of honest broker. So you go under Obama, you know, with Susan Rice or Tom Donilon, they'd say, here's the issue. Here's the recommendation of the Secretary of State. Here's the recommendation of the Defense Department. You know, here are their arguments. Facilitate, frankly, if the cabinet secretaries want to make those arguments directly to the president. It feels like Bolton just tries to dominate this process himself yeah. and make the decisions himself or probably present his own option to Trump. So it feels like Bolton is choking off what is supposed to be the collaborative nature of the approach. And then, yeah, Pompeo, instead of seeing his strength as I have all these diplomats in the field and I'm the leader of them and I, you know, we're implementing strategies every day and the State Department's kind of responsible for implementing foreign policy, he's trying to be the advisor to Trump too, yep. right? Yep. And he's getting into space that secretaries of state don't normally get into, like military policy. And then the Secretary of Defense, since Mattis left, is just a non-entity. I literally... Don't remember his name. No. I still don't. Yeah. Kind of embarrassing. Can't. Yeah. I can't remember. Probably name. embarrassing more for him than me, but. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no. And I don't. I also Espers? Yes. I also don't know the name of the White House press secretary. Oh, yeah. For, yeah. She used um, to work for what's her name? Which is remarkable, right? The uh, Mark Esper. The person who's a spokesperson for the U.S. government. I actually don't know their name. No. no. I mean, you could tell people like a good window on how the NSC works, right, is the press guidance that you used to do as spokesperson, mm-hmm. right? So Yeah. I mean, well, right. So we were in the comm shop. I mean, the idea for the NSC press team was, you know, you deal with a reporter's all day, every day, who have questions about Obama on foreign policy. We're calling the White House. Yeah. yeah, calling the White House. But you're also trying to coordinate the entire government's messaging around foreign policy. So we would we would lead a call in the morning with the DOD comms people and the State Department folks and the CIA and try to get everybody on the same sheet of music. I guarantee you that doesn't happen anymore. Yeah, I yeah, guarantee you yeah. they, don't try, they don't try, they don't care because they can't get the president on the same sheet of music with himself yesterday. So why bother trying to coordinate the agencies? And here's why that matters, right? Because if you're the NSC spokesperson, you're relaying, okay, here's what we're saying in the White House and so the State Department knows that. The State Department has their press briefing, but then every embassy around the world has a press officer, right? These people wake up today and are like... <laughs> Imagine you're in Denmark. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Like... And, and because there's no coordination, they're like, what What are we even saying about Denmark? You know? The message of the day is, fuck Denmark? Yeah, Wait, what? yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I'm just, I, my heart goes out to these like press officers at like, you know, a couple hundred embassies around the world who like are just flying behind every day on like, you know, what the message of the U.S. government is. It has got to be just infuriating. But that process is replicated in every issue, right? So the Asia people are coordinating and you mm-hmm. know, the rest of it. Here's a really important question that does not get talked about enough or worried about enough, and we should. Is there anything the international community can do about the fires and general deforestation in the Amazon? Since Bolsonaro, uh, Bolsonaro is the president of Brazil, seems not to care about the environment. Is there any action we can take? Ben, I know you have been kind of seized with this problem. Yeah, it's a massive problem, and it's very much tied to climate change, right? Because you need large rainforests to you know, help soak up all, all of the uh, you know, stuff we're putting up in the air, the it, like the carbon. And the more there's deforestation, the, the less cooling there is, natural cooling of the earth. And the, the Amazon is by far the largest rainforest in the world. And with the Paris Agreement, what was interesting is, you know, Western countries often, and, and China and India, were focused on reducing emissions. But for Brazil and Indonesia, in countries with large rainforests, like a, the most important thing they could do is protect those resources, right? Bolsonaro's come in and essentially said, I don't give a shit about the Amazon. Like mm-hmm. the people can log in there, they can cut down these trees, they can sell them. 
and frankly, he's gotten some pushback in the Brazilian judicial system, but by all accounts, deforestation has continued in the Amazon. Well, and today he's blaming NGOs saying they might have lit the fires. Yeah. I mean, it's very Trumpy. And yeah, because the deforestation kind of can contribute to these fires being worse, mm-hmm. right? And if the Amazon reaches a certain tipping point, the Amazon kind of naturally takes care of itself, right? So I'm not a scientist, but essentially, if you destroy enough of the Amazon, like you could reach a tipping point where this kind of ecosystem can no longer effectively protect itself. It just becomes like arid grasses. Exactly, right? right? And water isn't kind of circulating. Species are going extinct. Neighboring countries that depend on resources from the Amazon are suffering. Yes, something can be done about this. In the past, we have actually gotten Brazil to protect this resource by essentially saying, as governments, we're going to make part of our trading relationship that you have to protect these resources, right? Or in addition to governments, companies can take a stand here. And so, for instance, in the past, there have been circumstances where food companies refused to buy certain goods that were produced on parts of the Amazon that mm. had been illegally logged, right? And and so uh, beef and soybeans and other products that emanate from this region, frankly, consumers can pressure the companies that they buy food from to say, I don't want to be contributing to this problem, right? So I think there's a combination of Brazilians pushing back against this, and they are, and then also international pressure through trade agreements and also, frankly, just people saying we're not going to buy this stuff. Mm-hmm. Because if he's successful in essentially having the short-term sugar high, and by the way, this is also in Brazil's interest, of, of cutting down all these logs and selling them, but meanwhile destroying this natural resource, like th- that environmental degradation is not only going to contribute to climate change, it's going to it's going to hurt Brazil because they're going to lose this, this yeah. resource. It's yeah. just going to be arid land, as you said. It will be an absolute disaster. Let's do a fun one. Some people have been asking about like what was the best foreign trip or the most fun. I was trying to think about this. I, I feel like that first swing when he gave the major nonproliferation speech in Prague back in 2009 might have been my favorite trip ever. It was probably in part because it was this spectacular day in Prague when in Obama was speaking from Prague Castle in front of like tens if not hundreds of thousands of people. And like Prague is one of the most beautiful cities I think I've ever been to in my life. It might also have been because it was like our first trip and everything was new and cool cool, and exciting. Was I think maybe Strasbourg was on that trip for the NATO summit. So it was just this like very cool Euro trip. And then I believe we ended up in Istanbul where the plane broke down and we spent an extra day. (laughs) But you know, whatever. Well, yeah, I I guess my, I, I really loved Southeast Asia in general. And the trip we took to Vietnam in 2016 was an amazing trip. So we started in Hanoi, and we saw Andy Bourdain there, right? Right. And so yeah. I, I was like a total Makes Bourdain to think about. fan. I was just such totally obsessed with Anthony Bourdain. Did you set that years. up? I did because I was like so obsessed with this show. And it's actually kind of funny. We're in the car on the way to see Bourdain, and Obama's like, why, why are we doing this? He's like, this is a guy who wrote Kitchen Confidential. He didn't even remember, like, he didn't watch that show because he didn't right. have a lot of time. President. So I'm explaining this all to him. He's like, oh, great. We're doing this because you want to meet Anthony Bourdain, basically. But we had actually gotten to a point where we could push the Secret Service much harder than we were comfortable earlier uh-huh. in the administration to say, hey, we want him to just, like, walk into some restaurant where the people are just eating there. They don't know Obama's coming. Like, so Bourdain picked the restaurant. And 
we just like walk into this noodle shop in a Hanoi side street and like there are just people eating dinner there. And Obama sits down with Bourdain. And the best thing is they put us in a in a in kind of this tiny room next to the dining room, but they gave us all the same food. Nice. Yes. So I'm just like sitting there drinking a beer, eating like bun cha, like these noodles and meatballs. Is it spicy? And, and, yeah, it's super spicy. And I'm just like listening on headphones to this conversation that Bourdain had with Obama for like an hour. That was definitely a high point. I saw Bourdain after, and he looked like he had, was thinking, like, how has everything I've done in my life, like, somehow gotten me here? Can yeah. Be, like, he had this tats everywhere and, like, did not seem like the kind of guy who thought he was going to interview a president. That show, though, that show did more to help me understand, yes. like, foreign cultures and people than anything I read. Yes. Oh, unbelievably so. And I actually had an impact on policy, and I told Bourdain that. I, I saw his show on Laos. Mm-hmm and about the 80 million unexploded bombs that the U.S. left behind in Laos, I had no idea the, the scale of that problem. And and me and some other people got very interested, and we ended up providing significant amount of assistance to try to clean up those bombs. And the origin of that was just like watching Anthony Bourdain in my house. That same trip we went to Vietnam, we went to Hiroshima, hmm. which was one of the most powerful things that I've ever experienced, like flying in by helicopter to Hiroshima, first U.S. president. Man. We're with Caroline Kennedy, our ambassador, whose father also came the closest to nuclear war. I remember standing in the middle of the peace memorial, and there's like 100,000 people around us, and it's totally silent, just like waiting for Obama to lay this wreath and give this speech. And, and I, I thought what was so powerful about that whole trip is Vietnam and Hiroshima, right? Places that have every reason to be pretty... Hate our guts? Yes. Two million people in the streets of Vietnam, the biggest crowds we ever had to greet Obama. Hundreds of thousands of people lining the streets in Hiroshima waving. It was a window into like, people are good. Like people can forgive, people can reconcile. It just, it felt like Mm -hmm. a very Obama thing, you know? And and the Anthony Bourdain thing is in there. Also, I mean, the power of American values can get you past having someone drop a nuclear bomb on you. Yeah, that's pretty amazing. And and the, this friendship we built with Japan over the years, and yeah, they want to believe they want to believe in the better America. Yeah, like they know they're not seeing it right now. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. yeah. No, no, nobody knows better than Vietnam the the bad America, yeah. right? But they they want to believe the better story, you know. Yeah, I mean, I gotta say, I'm I know you love all things uh, to do with Asia, but for me, some of the worst trips were <laughs> yeah. to Asia because yeah. like they would always be like ten day slogs to some G twenty, normally in Seoul, and like. I would say two or three nights, I just wouldn't sleep one wink yeah. for one second. You'd walk down to the press file and I'd see like Mike Hammer and Ben Chang, who are also NSC press people, and we'd all just be zombies. Half the time you'd take an Ambien, it doesn't work. Yeah. You're kind of like losing your mind. And so, I mean, this is actually a, a fun thing that people should know. I mean, when you travel with the press corps, like I usually yeah, did, yeah. you're on a charter you plane. You had it much worse than we did. We leave earlier yeah. and like... We didn't have connectivity in the air, so that was the yeah. good part. But um, you were, if you were on Air Force One, you were kind of like rolling with Obama. I did a bunch of trips with Obama, like went to Portugal for yeah. some NATO summit, I think, and I was with him. But it was also funny to see like the over the time, over four years I was in the White House, the budgets for these reporters went down. Yeah. So like the no, first, it's a really interesting thing to watch. It's yeah. wild, right? Yeah. So like the first trip we did was like a two level plane. You know, like lots of space. People are in like business class seats. By the end, we were taking like 737 Maxes across the Atlantic, which was not particularly safe or comfortable or a great way to travel. One time we took the Miami Heat's charter plane to like Brazil. This is actually really interesting. So 
you know, there are the parallel trips, right? The Air Force One and the traveling presidential party, and then the press travels on their own, and people like you are traveling the press. It got so bad. The budgets are shrinking, right, so much for all these news organizations. There were trips after you left, Tommy, I think, in the second term, where there was no charter. Which is crazy because the if you're a CNN cameraman, you have like hundreds of pounds of equipment. Yeah. And so what happens is all the all the media companies pool the resources to charter a plane to fly everybody. But then there's a small number of reporters who travel on Air Force One. They're called the pool, right? And mm-hmm. they they can file reports that everybody has access to of like just Obama went here and did this. And some of these news organizations, because they were cutting so much uh, out of their budget, were like, you know what? It's not worth covering a, a presidential trip for foreign policy. And, you know, you lose something. You really I do. Mean, <laughs> if all you're getting is the president did this and president did that, and your reporters can't go and sense what's happening on the ground yep, yep. and interview people on the ground in the countries where we are, like that's texture lost to the American people. And, and, totally. And, and the decline of the the resources for these for foreign coverage uh, really just totally pronounced over the, the eight years. Yeah, and I sit here agreeing with you 100%, knowing full well that the press coverage out of our trips was almost never what we wanted it to be. It was never about the yeah. massive international issues that we were trying to put forward. It was usually about some dumb domestic thing that which, followed which us. Which also bothered me. I mean, I remember... I mean, I, you know, this is part of what I got so mad at the media by the by eighth year, but... You know, we would they we would fly all the, all the way around the world to be doing something like really important, and all they would ask about is like the political story on cable news at home. Right. So it's like this: you'd have this bizarre situation where like Obama is there with the leader of like Japan, and you know we're trying to negotiate a massive trade agreement, or we're dealing with North Korea, and they're asking about like a cable news controversy from home. And this, like, it's not even the reporter's fault. It's like that's what they're being told to ask. Well, you right. Know? It goes um, back to your fundamental point, though. Yeah. If you're just reading the pool reports about what Obama said, and you're not seeing the crowd and the reaction in yeah. Vietnam, you are missing half the story. You're missing the, the story. more important part yeah. of the story because yeah. half these trips are about public diplomacy and like yeah. making those populations want to, I don't know, support the United States. I mean, I remember when we were in um, Paris in 2015, we're negotiating the. Paris Climate Accord. I mean, like, arguably the most important issue in the world. The entire world is there negotiating this. And it was um, it was really hard to get a question on that, you know. And basically, there had been a terrorist attack in Paris a couple weeks before, or a few weeks before. And so all the questions were like, should you even be here? Like, shouldn't, mm-hmm. you know, shouldn't oh, yeah, you be dealing right. with ISIS? And it's like, the French are the ones who are attacked, and they're hosting the conference on the climate change, you know. But because Republicans are criticizing us on cable news for caring more about climate change and terrorism, like John Carl is asking us, like, what's a bigger threat, ISIS or climate change? Because he wants us to say that climate change is because then he knows. Some gotcha bullshit. Yeah, you know. Ugh. Yeah. It's making me mad all Sorry. over again. Although, motorcading through Paris with the president Very of the United cool. States was I think the coolest single thing I ever did, except from, you know, Air Force One, Marine One, like that stuff's amazing. But being in a foreign country with the president of the United States, it's uh, a feeling unlike anything I'll experience again. And and I I think it is, you know, kind of intoxicating. And you have to remind yourself that, you know, you're just temporary, right? Right. The motorcade is not for Obama, and it's certainly not for you. Right. It's for the office of the presidency, right? And and a lot of what what seems to go to Trump's head, it's fascinating when you watch him after a foreign trip, he's like, I was received so well. Like, they rolled out the red... They they put out these videos. You should look at the videos that the Trump people put out after his foreign trips, because all they show is like, 
red carpets mm-hmm. and motorcades and 21 gun salutes or whatever. And it's like, dude, they did that for the present before you. And unless you destroy the world, they will do it for the present after yeah. you. It's Trump thinks it's about him. Yeah, you're not special. It's, the respect is for the office of the presidency. <laughs> and like, that's what you have to remind yourself. Like, it's not them like bowing down to you. It's them you know, recognizing the importance of your office. Yeah, totally agree. Okay, here's another question we got. So someone asks, I'd like to hear more about U.S. military operations in Africa. Where, why, who? I've only heard Jeremy Scahill, who's a great reporter, talk about it. Okay, I can kick that one off. So I don't think we know all the places we're doing military operations anymore, but there was some good reporting in the New York Times recently and also in Politico. They talked about how we're doing direct action missions in Somalia, Libya, Kenya, Tunisia, Cameroon, Mali, Mauritania, and Niger. Some of those shouldn't (laughs) surprise you at all, like Somalia and Libya. You know, Cameroon, uh, Mali shouldn't surprise you, but, you know, Tunisia, Mali, Cameroon. You know, look, it was a a big surprise to a lot of people when four U.S. service members were killed in Niger after their unit was ambushed by ISIS-linked militants back in 2017. And then Trump was a jerk to the mother of one of the people who was killed. So this became a big issue. So those countries are where we know that guys are out doing missions to capture or kill militants. The tempo of those operations isn't the same everywhere. I imagine that the fighting against al-Shabaab in Somalia is incredibly intense. There's tons of airstrikes. Uh, The New York Times reported that there's about 500 U.S. troops in Somalia. So that's a pretty big deal. The truth is there are probably way more special forces missions and units in other countries on the continent. We also have a huge base in Djibouti, that is the hub for a lot of these operations, including a lot of drone operations that collect intelligence and do other things. In late 2018, a, a Pentagon spokesperson said that there were 7,200 U.S. forces deployed in Africa, but notably 10% of those are going to get shifted to other places. A lot of what they're doing is training missions. The goal is to get these you know, local armies or security forces trained up and equipped to deal with threats themselves in particular terrorism, because they're not just Al-Qaeda and ISIS, but there are groups like Al-Shabaab or Ansar al-Sharia, or all sorts of many flavors, extremist groups in the country. Boko Haram. Yeah, Boko Haram is a, a huge threat. You know, the, the challenge is that the Pentagon's always drawing this distinction between a training mission and direct action missions where there's actually going out and killing and capturing people ourselves. They can play a little fast and loose with how we define those things. But there's an Africa command. There's AFRICOM. It's one of the 10 combatant commands. It's oddly based in Germany, which is yeah. an issue for another another yeah. episode. Yeah. But, you know, we have significant military operations on the continent. Yeah, and I think we have too many. I don't think the U.S. should be engaged in, like, trigger pulling in countries where there's been no debate about it or discussion in the United yeah, States. Right. Like Cameroon, Niger, like, I'm surprised. The one thing I'll say about this is it ties back to the question about the Belt Road Initiative. In Africa, people know about this, right? Like AFRICOM has become kind of the United States in large parts of Africa. And that's what they see from us or that's what they're aware we're doing. So it's like the Chinese are here building stuff and you're here like training our security forces or, you know, fighting terrorists. I'm not saying that there's not a need for that in some places. Like there is. Like there's a huge threat from Al-Shabaab and Somalia and Boko Haram, obviously, and, and Nigeria, but also into... Cameroon, you got Al-Qaeda and, and Mali, but I feel like we've securitized our relationship with the African continent. And that's a comparative disadvantage to China, who are, it's like, we're here to, to build your roads and give you Huawei. And then we're here with a bunch of special forces guys, like training your security forces who 
you know, may or may not respect human rights. Yeah, good point. Yeah. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. Here is a complicated but important question that we will try to answer. Why did the Obama-Libya intervention fail so badly? Didn't you end up repeating exactly what happened in Iraq? Good question. I'm not sure I totally agree. I mean, I think you probably have to divide this into two parts, right? Like there was the very near-term Libya mission, which was to prevent the city of Benghazi, which then was not associated with the attack on our, our consulate, yeah, yeah. right? It was just a city of like, what, 800,000 people? Yeah. And there was intelligence, not even intelligence. I believe yeah, there yeah. were like 
there's media reports. No, uh, Gaddafi was so Gaddafi had said he had the opposition took control over like half the country and yeah, Benghazi the was the, the the center of the opposition and Gaddafi began to retake control of the country. And he said he was going to go house to house in Benghazi and kill people like rats. Yes, like, kill so people he, like rats. He announced that he was going to commit a massacre. Right. So what you didn't, you know, there was also intelligence, but you don't, didn't need it. Like you had Gaddafi saying this, and the intervention was UN Security Council authorized intervention to essentially stop Gaddafi from massacring people in. Benghazi and a couple other Libyan cities like Misrata, where the opposition was. And then it, of course, morphed into what became a regime change uh, effort. Phil Gordon, who worked uh, at the NSC under Obama, had a great quote when he left, which is, we went into Iraq with an enormous military footprint, and it was a catastrophe. We went into Libya with a very light footprint and Mm -hmm. ended up being a catastrophe. And we didn't go into Syria and ended up being a catastrophe. I, I not a direct quote, but that's basically what he said. And, you know, there's something to that, which is essentially like our capacity as America to shape what happens inside of other countries is much more limited than we think. Yeah. We could have 150 to 180,000 troops in Iraq for many years, and the place ends up as a complete mess. And in Libya, we put nobody on the ground, and the place ended up as a mess, right? There are two questions, as you said, like the initial intervention, which, you know, has drawn growing criticism over the years because of what happened, was a humanitarian intervention. It really was. I mean, people, I know people don't believe that. We wanted Libya's oil or something. No, like Obama didn't want to go to another war. He did not want to go to war. The (laughs) only reason is because he's sitting there and I was in the meeting and people are like, if we don't stop Gaddafi, he will massacre all these people. We can stop him. And the UN will authorize this. And so he would actually almost have to decide not to save these people because I don't want to get another war, which, by the way, might have been the right decision. In Syria, he never had that kind of option. He certainly didn't have UN authorization because the Russians were going to support it. But there was never as clear cut a thing as like there are all these people in this one place. And if you can just keep Assad out of that place, those people will be safe. Right. Like th- th- they were intermingled. Yeah. Right? Like uh, imagine a map in your head and like Qaddafi's guys are in New York and the rebels are in Boston and there's yeah. a line of tanks moving north. That's what it was. You were, yeah. or, I guess northeast. We were able to hit those forces who were moving with our, you know, cruise missiles and with planes and, ta- yeah. you know, whatever. We were able to take them out from the air basically. Now, there's arguments we shouldn't have done that either because yeah. U.S. military intervention in the Middle East ends badly. It wasn't congressionally authorized. I think this is one of these things that is, for history's sake, a 5149 call because we did it and Libya, uh, after Gaddafi was removed, has devolved into this kind of chaotic civil war because Gaddafi had hollowed out the opposition. So you just have all these militias fighting. If we had not done anything, Gaddafi would have massacred all these people. Like There would have been a bad outcome either way. And if your argument is to err on the side of not intervening, you say, don't intervene. Now, what went wrong, what, like analytically, with our policy? The principal thing I think we made a mistake that we shouldn't have made is once Gaddafi was removed, there was this kind of Libyan governing authority called the Transitional National Council that seemed like really good people. Like mm-hmm. they were largely diaspora Libyans and they said all the right things about democracy. And we were dealing with these people. You know, these are the people we're meeting with and that Obama's meeting with and the UN is meeting with. They 
had no control over Libya. <laughs> you know, like basically you had a situation where you had this political authority that was chosen and there was a process that produced who these people were, but then militias were controlling all of these cities. Mm-hmm. And so you have this whole political strategy that is running through people that really aren't able to pull a lever that affects what the people on the ground in Benghazi or Tripoli or Misrata are doing. Mm-hmm. And we never kind of, it's not that we didn't see that, we just never solved that problem. And one of the problems we had is the normal things you might do, like try to have a big UN office in Libya or, or even try to have some foreign NATO trainers, trained security forces, the Libyans didn't want any foreigners on their ground. It was a huge effort just to open us up a small UN office. So we could never solve this problem of the fact that like we as an international community can't seem to do much to demobilize these militias or to train security forces or to get development going in Libya. And the people we're talking to, even though they're Libyan and they're the governing authority of Libya, they can't really seem to do that. Somewhere in that window of time between when Gaddafi was removed and when kind of the wheels came off a year later, we just didn't make maximum use of that window. And I, that's not to, to criticize the people working on, on this policy in addition to me. I, I don't even know that we could have. But mm-hmm. like that to me is where you have three stages, the decision to intervene itself, then the window of time when it seems like things are going okay and maybe you can keep things from going off the rails, and then the period of time after things go off the rails, yeah. right? And you have to question our decisions at all three junctures. I feel like I can still defend the decision to intervene to save those people, although I've become so skeptical about military intervention that, you know, I don't know if 2016 Ben Rhodes would have recommended it in the same vigor that 2011 Ben Rhodes did. Uh, You'll recall I was a big supporter of that intervention Mm -hmm. for that purpose. Then there's this period of time when we're trying to affect what happens after Gaddafi's gone where I think we didn't. So people should assign failure to us for that. And not just us, by the way, the Europeans who had been front and center in this Mm -hmm. too. And then once it becomes a chaotic kind of civil conflict, then your, your policy options are much more limited. Yeah, and maybe a common thread with a lot of these failed war efforts is a total lack of institutions or governance or any capacity to sort of pick up the pieces after this international invasion. Yeah, and the the lesson for the United States is this lesson that, like, this idea that we can— and this has been my principal criticism of, like, the foreign policy establishment. We assume in the options we develop in and out of government that we can engineer outcomes in these Middle Eastern countries. Yeah, no chance. We can't, and we should learn that lesson. Yeah, agreed. We'll do a couple more. Might run a little long, but that's okay. Worldos can can pace this out as long as they want. Uh, Lots of China questions today. That's interesting. So China in the Uyghur re-education camps. Are Muslims still being placed in these camps? Is there any talk of intervention happening to stop it? Has this administration said anything about the thousands of people being placed in these camps? Great question. Uh, We've talked about this a few times the Chinese government is holding uh, like one to two million Chinese Uyghurs in concentration camps in northwest China. Uh, the Uyghurs are a Muslim minority group that the Chinese government views as a threat. They worry about them essentially being, you know, the, the Xinjiang province, which is where they are. It's really closer to Kyrgyzstan or Uzbekistan than Beijing, both physically and culturally. And I think they worry about the Uyghurs breaking away and trying to become an autonomous region. And the Xinjiang province has a lot of coal reserves and oil and gas. So it's, you know, resource rich. And they think that they, the Chinese government thinks that they need those resources long term. So they've done a lot of things to that. The region, they've convinced a whole bunch of Han Chinese to move to Xinjiang from other places. That's led to a lot of ethnic strife. There have been were some bad riots back in 2009 between Han Chinese and Uyghurs, which, you know, really 
I don't want to say led to, no, the, the Uyghurs are not to blame here, but I think precipitated this crackdown. So Xinjiang province has become a dystopian police state. Uh, there are cameras everywhere. Those cameras use facial recognition software to identify regular citizens, to track their movements. There's checkpoints everywhere. There's no freedom of expression. Like they, these Uyghurs have to give over biometric data to the government, like their fingerprints, they have to give blood, they have to install a surveillance app on their phones. I mean, I can't imagine anything that's awful. On top of that- It is 1984. It's, it's literally 1984. It's actually literally 1984. Yeah. And then on top of that, it gets worse, which are these re-education camps, which it's not, this is like- They're not re-educating. They're not educating yeah. shit, yeah. right? It's rote memorization of like Chinese communist propaganda songs and, and sayings and shit. And like, you have to like, you know- Sing your fealty to Xi Jinping. And there's reports of like torture. Yeah, it is brainwashing. Yeah. And at worst, it's torture and abuse. And so back in July, the Chinese claimed that the camps were a great success and that everyone had been re-educated and released. No one should believe that. Yeah. Uh, released where? Released into what? Now there's all these reports that they're actually building giant factories adjacent to these camps. So yeah. now they're forced labor camps. The administration, someone in the Pentagon, I think, called the camps concentration camps. I wouldn't say Trump has done a damn thing to try to help these people. There's zero talk of intervention happening. A whole bunch of Muslim countries, I believe the Saudis, have suggested that these camps are actually a good thing if you want to yeah. know how absolutely morally bankrupt <laughs> yeah. these people yeah. are. So, yeah. you know, it's a crime against humanity. Yeah, I and if people want to get the playbook, it's they're trying to do really quickly in the Uyghur situation what they did to Tibet, which is Tibet, autonomous province that had an independence movement, its own culture, its own language. And over decades, they basically strangled Tibetan culture, repopulated the area with a lot of Han Chinese, started trying to stamp out the Tibetan language. The Dalai Lama is treated like a terrorist, even though he's the Dalai Lama. So that they basically take this province that used to not be Chinese. I mean, it was seen as part of China by China, but it was, you know, distinctly Tibetan in terms of its culture. And they, they're they making it Chinese. And now they seem to be trying to do the same thing here. And what can be done, I mean, at a minimum, like just much more spotlighting and, and international tension, which is uncomfortable to the Chinese, right? The U.S. raising this, U.S. working with other countries to raise it, the U.S. trying to spotlight it. If the U.S. is on like the Human Rights Council, the U.N., which we're not, you'd be trying to, to press the issue there. You know, the Chinese, you're, you may not solve the problem that way, but I think you would check some of this abuse create some discomfort for the Chinese around it. Right now, they clearly kind of feel like they have some free reign in this. Yeah, total impunity. There's been amazing reporting on these camps. The BBC did incredible work yeah. that you should check out. A friend of the pod, Isabel Young from Vice News, did an amazing yeah. report where she like embedded and traveled there. It's, it's dangerous. To super do dangerous yeah. and brave. So check it out. Another question before we sort of come to a close here. The second largest Ebola outbreak is happening right now and spreading to different countries, and yet it seems to be hardly reported on. What differences are there uh, between this outbreak and the one of 2014 and, and what's that the media seemed to be covering at the time? So I, I, a few thoughts, and then, Ben, you lived through this. Yeah, I mean, yeah. this is the second biggest Ebola outbreak ever. Yep. The 2014 Ebola outbreak was made much worse by some truly hysterical, irresponsible coverage. Donald Trump was a key driver of that coverage. Yeah, so yeah. I guess it's good that he's not doing that anymore, but it's bad that he's in charge of the international response. This time it's different that because there's a vaccine that has helped a lot, but there's also concern that the virus will mutate because all viruses ultimately mutate and maybe could get more contagious or lethal. A major problem this time 
is distrust for health workers or even worse, that the Ebola is spreading in a lot of places like the Democratic Republic of Congo yeah. that are dangerous, that are controlled by militia forces that make it too unsafe for healthcare workers to even go there. It's also being found, uh, Ebola is being found in major population centers, which is really the nightmare scenario. Um, I interviewed Ron Klain a few months back who yeah. coordinated the response for us in 2014. I think everything he said in that conversation still probably holds. But I mean, I imagine this must have been one of the scariest things you guys dealt with. Yeah. Yeah. There was a meeting where we were briefed by the people who run like the Center for Disease Control mm-hmm. and National Institutes of Health that unchecked, like if the current conditions continued, the number of people killed by this could go into like above 10 million people, Jesus. right? It was at, in like the low thousands and, the, and they were showing us this curve where essentially if this was not dealt with quickly, over 10 million people could die, largely in Africa. But another key difference here is the Ebola epidemic, the outbreak in 2014 was in West Africa. Mm-hmm. So it was in countries like Liberia and Sierra Leone where, where there's just much more transit to other parts of the world. You know, this coastal areas, people flying to Europe, to the U.S. even, whereas this is, yeah, the Democratic Republic of Congo, there's not as much circulation with kind of the outside world. So tragically, like if this isn't coming to the West, sometimes it doesn't generate the same hysteria, right. right? That's right. But what we essentially had to do is set up this massive public health infrastructure in Africa, facilitated by the U.S. military, to essentially get this under control and stamp it out. And, and ultimately, we're successful. I honestly think it's like perhaps the most underappreciated accomplishment of Barack Obama is eight years as president, because nobody gives you credit for what you prevented and might have saved literally millions of lives by doing something that had never been done before, setting up like a mobile military unit that could... And Trump said this was stupid. Trump demagogued every step we took to stamp out Ebola. We shouldn't send healthcare workers. We shouldn't send the military. That's what worked. Here, the problem is, as you said, in like places like the DRC, the Democratic Republic of Congo, you've got militias like attacking healthcare workers. You've got people, you know, spreading conspiracy theories that the healthcare workers are there to give you Ebola. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it. we have to care about these places because they're fellow human beings and also because if we don't get it under control, it will spread, right? Mm-hmm. And this ties back to the conversations we've had about foreign assistance. You know, like if we're not paying for the international health infrastructure through the World Health Organization or even kind of like the minimal amount of public health infrastructure that's necessary to deal with an Ebola epidemic, that's going to come to our borders. This really is an investment that is relatively small compared to the investment we'd have to make if this Ebola epidemic spreads. Yeah. I mean, I remember watching a 60 Minutes piece on some of these uh, healthcare workers who traveled to treat Ebola patients, and they're the most brave, like, heroic people on the planet. And Trump was suggesting that if they got sick, we shouldn't bring them back to the United States, which is just so craven. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, like, he quarantined, you know, he and Chris Christie, I remember, yeah. quarantining some healthcare worker who'd gone there. She didn't have Ebola, but it was just this hysteria that we're, and politicians literally knew that they were fueling fears and making the response more difficult. But because it was near to a midterm election and Barack Obama happened to be president of the United States, 
I mean, it was among the most cynical things ever done, mm-hmm. right, uh, during the Obama presidency, and that's saying a lot. But did you work on, like, H1N1? Oh, yeah. So swine yeah. flu or avian yeah. flu. Those were some scary. The scariest meetings were always the, the health care-related meetings. meetings. Yeah. All these people who worked on, like, terrorism in the government and stuff, the thing they were most scared of was not, like, yeah. some guy shooting a bunch of people, as terrible that is. It's what if one of these things proves to be untreatable or unstoppable? You're talking about like biblical, you know, levels of potential human suffering. We fortunately got that 2014 epi- epidemic of Ebola under control. But this has always worried me about like Trump. Like, not to, I'm not just taking this back to Trump because I don't like Trump. It's that the amount of competence that is necessary to get on top of something like that, the, the credibility, need, and the need for the credibility for the public to trust you or for the government to work. All these government agencies that he's like hollowing out. Mm-hmm. Man, you don't need the CDC the Center for Disease Control and the National Institute of Health until you really need them. That's right. You know, and if if they're gutted and they're not funded, when we need them, they won't be there. Yeah, the meetings where I saw uh, random generals with like three or four stars look scared shitless or Lisa Monaco or John Brennan look truly terrified were all uh, health related. And uh, yeah. Okay, two quick ones that came in from Instagram and then we're going to close this bad boy out. Here's one for you, Ben. Short and sweet and to the point. Why should I care about Brexit? I imagine this from an American. Oh, uh, I mean, as an American, like the, you know, Brexit, if it goes forward as a hard Brexit, we talked about there's no deal with the European Union. It's one more potential big economic shock that could contribute to this general building sense of a recession or even potentially a financial crisis globally. So there could be kind of short-term aftershocks that reach the United States in terms of the global economy. I think more generally, the European Union, right, the largest trading bloc in the world, largely a creation and part of American foreign policy. We've been talking about this big bad world where there's the Chinese and the Russians and and India's taking a, a, a difficult turn. Europe is our partner in the world. That's who we generally agree with about things. They share democratic values. And so the more powerful the U.S. and Europe are working together, the more effective we're going to be in dealing with all the foreign policy challenges we've been talking about, whether it's promoting democracy or combating disease, standing up for human rights in difficult circumstances. The U.K. leaving the EU kind of weakens the EU's voice globally Mm -hmm. because you take a big chunk, an important country out of it. And it weakens the UK, who's our closest ally, because they can no longer amplify their voice within the European Union. So just from a general American foreign policy interest, you know, by diminishing the influence potentially of both the UK and the EU, it might just over time, it will over time make it harder. I think also complicates all kinds of information sharing. You know, we, we have all these agreements with Europe, on sharing information, fighting terrorism, et cetera. We may need to now figure out how to duplicate those. And and so it adds another layer of cumbersome bureaucracy to how we deal with threats. But I think the core thing is it could hurt the economy. It undermines the strength of kind of the democratic world. It undermines the way in which the U.S. has conducted foreign policy aligned with Europe. It potentially weakens and even could disintegrate the United Kingdom and it, it'll just complicate our how we coordinate among all these different parties. Well said. Uh, last one, equally short and sweet. How do tariffs affect me? Another great, important question. So I, I can start with this one. Yeah. A tariff is a tax. 
and a tariff is a tax on you, the U.S. consumer. Trump tries to claim that somehow he's taxing the government of China. That is not the case. These taxes go on the companies that import goods from China who pass along that price increase to you. So Trump right now has been floating the suggestion that maybe the payroll tax to juice the economy. A bunch of economists and banks think that any kind of move like that has already been offset by increased prices consumers will pay on uh, these tariffs. So that's a very immediate near-term way these tariffs impact you. The other thing you should know, though, is it's rare that uh, a tariff gets put on a good or a service and that's the end of it. It's Usually they return the favor and those tariffs can escalate. Yeah. This is what people have been warning about since the very beginning. I mean, part of the problem when, about this trade war is when it started, there were a lot of people saying that the sky uh, is falling and what they should have said is that the sky will slowly start falling over the course of several years because this trade war will escalate. And as you've noted on the show before, trade wars like this can not only impact the global economy, and we're already seeing that, but they can lead to different kinds of conflicts, actual yeah. wars. Yeah. So tariffs are, you know, look, we're not saying like absolute free trade is the best way to go on all things we do. But, you know, last episode, we talked about how tariffs are going to decimate the California wine industry. I mean, there's there's farmers, there's small businesses, there's people who are being hurt all across this country. And it's also the one of the biggest tax uh, hikes in history. So yeah. tariffs suck. Yeah. I mean, pay attention. You know, you're paying higher prices for things. If you notice the prices going up, chances are it's because of the tariffs. If you're in an industry that's been hit by China's reciprocal actions, like the agricultural industry, you really hurt, or the California winemakers. And mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, th- this is this one hits you directly, you know, more so even than Brexit. And, and it's hitting most Americans. Right in your wallet. Way. Yeah. Well, this was fun. I, we yeah. should do more mailbags. These yeah, are great like the questions. Mailbag, yeah. So stick with us after the break and you will hear my interview with Congressman Ro Khanna. So I'm Ben Rhodes. I'm really happy to be joined by someone I've gotten to know a bit over the last couple of years who's really one of the leading progressive voices in the House of Representatives on developing a progressive foreign policy and a lot of issues. So Congressman Ro Khanna from California, uh, thanks for joining us. Ben, it's great to be on with you. So I can't help but start, Congressman, with uh, the G7 that recently concluded in France. There's obviously a lot to take in there. Uh, you know, Putting aside you know, Trump wanting to host the next summit at his resort and the kind of weirdness about Putin. You know, there are a lot of real issues on the table there, including, you know, climate change and the fires in the Amazon. What, what is your reaction as someone, you know, who has a role to play on American foreign policy and watching, you know, how our president approached that summit and how the leaders of the rest of the G7 countries responded to him? It shows the consequence of a lack of American leadership. Uh, Usually the world looks to the American president for leadership, whether it's on climate change or whether it's on Iran or whether it's on tackling a global slowdown in the economy. Here you have a president unwilling to provide that leadership. So you have Macron uh, trying to negotiate a deal for how we tackle the Amazon fires in Brazil. And uh, he's blown off because the reality is France economically and culturally uh, in this world doesn't matter as much as the American president. That should be Donald Trump leading the efforts to do something to stop those fires in uh, the Amazon. And he doesn't even show up to the session on that. He doesn't show up in terms of the negotiation with Iran. And of course, I mean, you you helped 
uh, construct the agreement uh, with Iran that he just casually tossed aside. But, you know, why would you want to cede the negotiation to the president of France? So, and, and on the economy, uh, I mean, he has, it's his trade war that's hurting uh, directly Germany's economy, and he has no constructive solution. So, this is the consequence of a lack of American leadership. Well, you know, what's interesting to me is you mentioned a few issues, uh, Iran and climate, obviously, that depend on American leadership and engagement. One of the things I've noticed over the years is, you know, you and me, for that matter, have made some criticisms of American foreign policy that Trump has also made about the wars in the Middle East, about the need to promote less intervention militarily and more burden sharing. But Trump takes that in this kind of isolationist direction. You know, I'm wondering, as a progressive, how do you define an American leadership in the world that gets us out of the business of the post-9-11 era of fighting wars, but doesn't fall into the kind of trap of isolationism and, and retrenchment that we see with Trump? I think that's exactly right. I mean, we need to be for military restraint, restraint in military interventionism, recognizing that we can't, through the military, promote democracy or transform uh, other nations. But that doesn't mean that we retreat from the world stage. We still need to lead in helping solve problems, whether it's climate change, whether it's uh, nuclear nonproliferation, whether it's counterterrorism, whether it's dealing with uh, global poverty. And I, I think, I mean, you can go all the way back to John Quincy Adams, where he says, you know, you don't go out to uh, seek monsters to destroy. But the passage right before that famous phrase is America should be engaged in giving our benedictions, our hopes, our prayers, our constructive engagement to building a, a world that is consistent with the values of liberal democracy. So Trump uh, rejects the engagement part of it. And uh, I think progressives should have a focus on restraining the military interventionism part of it. So to get into that, you've led uh, in the House on two really signature efforts, I think, that are among the most important things that have happened in the Democratic House on foreign policy. One is the provision to end U.S. support for the war in Yemen. And the other was an amendment to essentially make clear that there is not congressional authorization for the use of force against Iran. And obviously, Trump is not you know, going to sign these into law, but to, to achieve uh, majorities uh, on these issues is is a real achievement. I want to break this down into two pieces. First, the Democratic Party, and then we'll get to the Republican Party. First, the Democratic Party. I mean, I actually think it's a bit of a sea change that you have Democrats voting in these numbers uh, against a potential war with Iran and, and to terminate support for the war in Yemen. Uh, we didn't have that kind of support for the Iran deal. We had support, but not the, the same numbers you had on the Yemen bill. Do you think, uh, in talking to your colleagues uh, the last four years, do you have a sense that the party is moving in a more progressive direction on these questions of the use of force in the Middle East? Is that a response to Trump, or is that uh, the work that people like you've been doing to try to build uh, a new consensus in the party? Why, why do you think you were able to achieve those results just looking at the Democratic vote? I do think it has changed, and I certainly uh, wouldn't give myself credit. I frankly would start with uh, President Obama's campaign, or even before that, uh, Howard Dean's campaign in, in 2004, and a sense of complete frustration with the war in Iraq, uh, a recognition that 
That was one of the greatest blunders of the 21st century American foreign policy. And many Democrats had voted, as you know, for that war. I mean, almost half the party had voted for that war, uh, and not Speaker Pelosi, but a lot of the other Democrats. And I think many people regret that vote. And so from that moment, you started to see a reexamination of uh, American foreign policy and what the use of force could accomplish. The Yemen war, the Khashoggi murder, I think, where uh, the Saudis uh, were so barbaric about that. And then when people learned that Khashoggi's was uh, writing about the casualties in Yemen and the fact that there were almost 14 million people in Yemen who faced famine. I think that really struck the conscience of a lot of people in our in our caucus. And by the end of it, we had almost unanimity in saying that uh, the United States shouldn't be refueling the Saudi planes that are bombing Yemen. And this made a huge difference. I mean, one of the things uh, try to get across is that Congress can actually impact foreign policy. Even though the Senate and House uh, passed the War Powers Resolution and it was vetoed by the president, that doesn't mean it didn't have an impact. It led to Mattis uh, calling up the Saudis and telling them that they needed to work with Special Envoy Griffiths and get a ceasefire in Hodeida. It led to the administration voluntarily suspending the refueling I believe it's led to the administration now being willing to engage with the Houthis in Yemen. And you've seen UAE now withdrawing, uh, at least from active uh, engagement in Yemen. All of these things, I think, happened because Congress said, we are going to care, we're going to exercise our right for scrutiny. And I think you have on the Democratic side, not just a wariness about getting in these interventions, but also a greater boldness of saying, you know, we can actually impact the world in a direction uh, more consistent with progressive values. Yeah, no, and I think that's clear. And you see that in the the platforms of all the candidates who basically uh, supported those efforts and and the effort uh, to say that we need to repeal the authorization for the use of military force that's been in place since uh, shortly after 9-11. Before we come back to the progressive side, though, I also think it's important to note that you've made an effort to try to build coalitions with Republicans on the Iran provision, uh, saying that the you know, war was not authorized with Iran. You worked with some uh, very conservative representatives, Matt Gates, for example. Uh, I've also noticed, you know, you've you've taken your case uh, on some of these issues to, to Fox News and other places. Are you finding that there are areas of foreign policy where you can reach out to some Republicans and, and build coalitions? Like, what is the opening for progressives to work with some Republicans uh, on these issues? Yes, there is an opening. I mean, you're not going to be able to work with Republicans on uh, tackling climate change or tackling global poverty or, or, you know, even a new deal with Iran. But you can work with Republicans on on, uh, two areas, one that the president of the United States needs to come to Congress before getting us in a military conflict. A lot of the Freedom Caucus actually take the Constitution quite seriously, and they believe that Congress under Article One has uh, the power over war and peace. So you have people like Jim Jordan or Mark Meadows who may actually even believe that uh, an intervention is justified but will oppose any intervention without congressional authorization. So that's one place uh, of common ground. And second, uh, you know, the argument that I used with some of these Republicans is I said, look, you, you believe that China is the long-term strategic challenge to the United States. Well, 
you know, our GDP is about 24% of the world. China is about 15 or 16% of the world. And the entire Middle East is 3.5% of the world. And Iran is 0.44% of the world. So strategically, what are we doing there? I mean, what, what, how do you think that this is helping our strategic uh, posture in the 21st century? And there are a growing number of Republicans, again, in the Freedom Caucus, who do believe that some of these interventions have weakened our position to lead the world and weakened us relative to China. So, you know, I think the China piece is a good segue to talking about if you look at what a progressive foreign policy would look like, both emanating from Congress and hopefully from a, a Democratic president in 2021. I think you've made very clear the kind of restraint on the use of military force manifested in ending support for the war in Yemen, ending the authorization of the use of military force, you know, presumably winding down some of our military commitments in the Middle East and deprioritizing that as, as a kind of central focus of American foreign policy. And I've noticed, you know, that's also been a focus, of course, of candidates like Bernie Sanders, you know, who you've supported. What else constitutes, though, a, a, a long-term progressive agenda? What, what do you want to see the next Democratic president do uh, in addition to kind of winding down these wars and showing more restraint on the use of military force? What's the, what's the affirmative piece here? Well, I think the affirmative piece first begins with investments in the new technologies and new industries of the 21st century. The way to stay ahead of China isn't to have an irrational tariff war. Uh, it's to see what they're doing. They are putting resources into artificial intelligence, into quantum computing, into new industries. By the way, they're copying what America used to do. And I think the United States uh, needs to look at this uh, like we did uh, uh, post-Sputnik. We need to say America is going to lead in these industries of the future. We need to make massive investments in the National Science Foundation, in DARPA, in ARPA-E, in the National Institute of Health, in the leading industries and technologies of the future. And we need to focus on how to locate these innovation hubs, not just on the coast, but across America, so that we're uh, having our talent uh, Everywhere, And I think that that is a, a, a much more honest answer to how to deal with deindustrialization and how to stay uh, ahead of uh, China uh, than this sense of uh, a tariff uh, that isn't even thought through and that is uh, hurting uh, many American manufacturers by definition, by the way, because the manufacturing index, is, as you probably saw, Ben, is down at the lowest level uh, for the last 10 years. I mean, it's the first time we've had a contraction since yeah. 2008. So it's not working. Let's have a real policy that would work and keep us ahead. And second, in, in terms of how you confront a, a nation like China, let's recognize that there is IP theft. But uh, why aren't we investing in smart solutions? Why aren't we investing in blockchain that could help uh, prevent some of this? Why aren't we investing in cloud software that can turn off software uh, if it's stolen. I mean, why aren't we being more imaginative? You, if you talk to people like Tim Cook at Apple or technology leaders, they'll tell you there are actually technology solutions that would be much more uh, helpful. And then finally, I guess, is a philosophical perspective, which is I believe that multilateral institutions have been good for stability and have been good for peace. And I believe that Having relations with nations like China and like India and like Brazil around the world uh, to, to push for a 21st century that doesn't have the same horrors of the 20th century is something we should be working towards. We shouldn't be 
ripped off by China, but we also shouldn't be seeking to replicate a new Cold War. And we need to cooperate on certain issues, climate change, again, being one of them, tackling global poverty being another one of them. So looking at how do we advance the sort of common values that are going to make a better world while making sure that we're tough where it's appropriate. And you mentioned in there, in a couple places, you know, the role of technology, obviously in the context of the ongoing trade war with China, but also the way in which technology is used is going to have a lot to say about, you know, the future of democracy, for instance, and hate speech. And, uh, you know, as I see it, there, there are two real risks here. One is the use of technology in kind of a surveillance state way as the Chinese are putting into place. And the other is the kind of unbridled, unregulated uh, internet that has been manipulated by Russia, for instance, to interfere in our election, or that is a place where you see the spread of hate speech on platforms like 8chan uh, were used by some of the mass shooters recently. You represent Silicon Valley, and so you're obviously close to the tech industry you know, physically. You've also been an advocate for an internet bill of rights to protect consumer privacy, which bears some resemblance to what was recently passed in the European Union. I'm wondering what your view of the government's role in regulating the tech companies and social media companies on these questions of speech and privacy. What is the responsibility of the government and, and what falls on the shoulders of the companies? Well, we need more regulation and tech companies need to do better. Now, we need thoughtful regulation, but uh, there is no excuse for having some of these manifestos uh, going viral on the internet that are inciting violence. I mean, these manifestos on 8chan that you referenced uh, are from the great replacement theory uh, or the, uh, you know, the shooter in Norway or the shooter with the, the Christchurch uh, uh, shootings where people are concerned that uh, there's massive demographic change and the way to deal with that is to uh, resort to violence. Well, that isn't protected speech under the First Amendment. And I think uh, the our government needs to be far more aggressive in shutting down that kind of speech that's inciting violence. And I think the tech companies have a greater responsibility to hire more human reviewers and to put more resources into artificial intelligence to be able to uh, detect that kind of uh, speech and to, to remove it. And you can have human review. I'm not saying that, you know, I mean, in certain cases, you genuinely have First Amendment concerns, that, like when Mitch McConnell wanted to put the protest against his, himself on online. I mean, I don't think that should be removed because that is probably a legitimate First Amendment exercise. So you def definitely need human review, but these tech companies can can hire more folks. And then finally, I will say that you need a better legal framework. Uh, we need a consortium of tech companies that are able to share information with each other about bad actors and work with the Department of Homeland Security. And I'm actually working on a bill with uh, Kevin McCarthy uh, to try to fund that kind of a consortium, so similar to what the banks have, so that we can be more aggressive in in uh, identifying the bad actors online. And do you think that some of these approaches, since these are kind of global issues, right, and all these tech companies are global, um, are these the kinds of things that the United States, you know, just tries to get our house in order here at home, or you know, is this the kind of thing where we have to go around the world and work with Europe and work with other countries to try to develop kind of standards, norms, a legal framework that, that can be globalized to deal with these various challenges? 
I think we need to work globally, but the problem has been in the absence of American leadership that Europeans have led with with the GDPR, which is, by the way, I don't think that great. I mean, for example, I mean, it's better than nothing, but in the GDPR, the regulations say that uh, you need to be able to get a person's consent anytime data is used. Well, anytime you see an ad online, you are going to have data be used in some way. And so what you have now is consumers literally having to click 20, 25 times on a website. The problem is that uh, the United States Congress hasn't acted. I mean, President Obama, and I don't want to be biased, but it's just the fact. He tried two times with people like Todd Park and Megan Smith to have an Internet Bill of Rights. That would have been a far more thoughtful framework on Internet privacy than what the GDPR has. And frankly, the tech companies didn't come to the table enough and Congress didn't come to the table. So what you have now is because of the absence of American leadership, a privacy regime that isn't as thoughtful uh, and in the United States uh, is non-existent. And what we really need is American leadership to have a regime that's going to encourage innovation and then let that be the standard for the world. But we can't expect the world to choose that when we aren't offering anything. So, I, you know, one more question tying some of this together is, you know, you've been developing through your oversight and legislation, you know, these kind of pillars of a progressive foreign policy. Trump has is, is obviously ignored the will of Congress on issues like Yemen and, uh, and to some extent Iran and not acting on these tech issues. I mean, I'm just for our listeners, you know, to try to get a sense of what the role of a member of the House majority is. How much do you see yourself? You know, trying to move the ball down the field, trying to get stuff passed that might become law, or trying, as with Yemen, to at least send a message that the world has to respond to, versus how much are you trying to build the agenda that can then get put into place if a Democrat wins the president? I mean, it, you know, it, what is what is the role of being in the House majority right now when you you know some of the stuff you're working on is ultimately going to hit a roadblock with Trump? Are you conducting oversight or, or are you also seeing yourself as kind of building a runway to a potential democratic presidency? That's a very thoughtful question. I'd say that there are three different priorities. The most, the highest priority is stop bad things from happening. Uh, just make yeah. sure that the administration isn't separating kids uh, from their parents. Make sure that the administration isn't denying people entry uh, because of their religion try to make sure in a, in my district that, uh, you know, there's been so many cases and I, I don't want to go uh, mentioning personal cases of people who have just been treated without any regard for their rights who are uh, applying through the process uh, on, on immigration. So make sure you're helping them and you're standing against some of the atrocious uh, actions of the administration. I think most members of Congress of the majority first are, view is we've got to stop the the harm. And I actually think that's where we've been most successful as a House majority. Uh, I just know because I was I got elected in 2016. And that first term, almost every day you had the House voting to uh, repeal or undermine an EPA regulation, a Department of Labor regulation, a health regulation. And now that we have the majority, at the very least, we can stop that from happening because they don't have Congress. The second area, I think, is the the leadership with trying to build coalitions and trying to to at least shame or put pressure on the administration uh, to do the right thing. And that's what we've tried in Yemen and Iran. You know that the president is probably not going to end up signing uh, the war powers legis legislation, 
uh, and he's not going to sign a standalone bill to support, to stop uh, funding for a war in Iran. So you work to see, can you add the Iran amendment to the authorization, to the national defense authorization, where the president's probably not going to veto the authorization to fund the military. So if you can get the amendment in there, you're finding a way to handcuff uh, the administration. Uh, and if you can build enough pressure where you get Republicans speaking out as well, then maybe the, the, the president listens more to Congress than to the more hawkish advisors, Pompeo and, and Bolton. So I would say, you know, that's uh, uh, probably the, the second priority. And then the final priority, which is probably 20 percent, is can we start to, to, to build a affirmative vision uh, for a more progressive foreign policy? And I want to give, you know, you, Ben, credit and, and President Obama credit because I believe, and I, I believe this very fundamentally, that what you achieved in Iran and the JCPOA was a fundamental reimagining of America's role in the world. We have been beset with the problem uh, in the Middle East since 1953, since the uh, CIA's involvement in, in the overthrow of Mossadegh. And that tension between the United States and Iran in one way or another has uh, led to a lot of uh, hardship for the United States and a lot of uh, intervention. And the president, with your help and others, reset that fundamental dynamic. And I think she was trying to shift us away from the Middle East into a a sense of how are we going to win the 21st century and innovation and how are we going to be recognize the rise of China, the rise of India. So I think that framework is one we have to build on. Now, I obviously don't agree with every step uh, of the previous uh, Obama administration. Yeah. No one is perfect. But I think that framework is one that now the next president can build with, uh, learn from, and, and make sure that we uh, are engaged in in the real things that are going to help win the 21st century. Great. Well, look, that's a great note to end on. And uh, I want to thank you for uh, all your leadership uh, on these issues. Everybody should kind of watch Rokana on Twitter and uh, when he's out in the media a fair amount. He's really driving, helping to drive with his colleagues uh, a progressive agenda. So thank you for joining us. Hope we can uh, keep in touch on these issues in the future, too. I appreciate it, Ben, and I appreciate uh, your help uh, and counsel to many members on Congress on, on these issues. I enjoy doing it. Thanks so much. Thank you all for sending in great questions. Thank you all for listening. Yeah, thank you, Worldos, for listening. We really uh, appreciate it. And like, you should know that, you know, I think that number of people listening to the show on a weekly basis is basically double what it was a year and a half ago. Which so cool. uh, lots of people out there care Worldos about the planet. Want to know. Yeah, yeah. Worldos want to know stuff. So tell your friends, rate and review us in the store. Thank you for allowing me this brief reprieve. Hopefully Ben will... I'll try to hold it down here before I'm, I'm the one who starts traveling. And, and and I will say what's interesting, I look at the questions and, and I've noticed this in some of the comments that like we hadn't talked about Africa, we haven't talked about certain regions. Like we appreciate that feedback and we'll make an effort yeah. to make sure that we're trying to cover what you guys are interested in. Yeah, for sure. And also, I didn't get to say it, but man, I'm sad I missed the uh, Ennis Cantor interview yeah, yeah what a cool guy yeah and also terrific my guy. god he's jacked he's jacked he's got he came S right from his workout sleeveless workout shirt i'd never done a sleeveless interview but if <laughs> i had guns like that i would definitely do this i have to say you're wearing one of the best t-shirts i've ever seen yeah, right dude. now which is just an old yeah. school andre agassi i'm an agassi guy that's it's like agassi with the big hair it's kind of got a neon 90s i guess that thing is yeah. that thing is sweet this is top of the drawer with uh the Isle of Haters t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you for tuning in. Talk to you next week. See ya.
Pod Save the World is a product of Crooked Media. The show is produced by Michael Martinez. It's mixed and edited by Chris Basil. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Nar Malconian, and Milo Kim, who film and share these interviews on video each week.